0: Hello, and a very warm welcome to season two of Angelica Love's Conversations. My name is Angelica Love. I'm a social psychologist, and as you will know by now, in this podcast, I sit down with what I like to call social integration practitioners entrepreneurs, activists, and academics who are very hands on when it comes to creating well integrated, diverse, healthy, and peaceful societies. Season one and two of the podcast feature a total of 14 conversations on the expansive topic of social integration. Today, I am bringing you the first of two bonus episodes, a conversation on integration with a slightly different angle. Today's episode features my interview with General Sir Peter Wall. Until 2014, Sir Peter was the head of the British Army. More recently, he co-founded the leadership consultancy Amicus, which advises top teams on questions of effective leadership, especially through crises. Over the past year, Peter and I have been working closely together to develop tools and training to facilitate inclusive leadership, leadership that enables diverse teams to thrive. Together, we're also grappling with questions of effective leadership when teams are dispersed across different home offices. And in this conversation, we talk about creating and leading cohesive teams, how to cope well in the remote work environment that is a reality for many of us during the ongoing COVID 19 pandemic, and what lessons from leadership in the military Peter can transfer to the business world. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Peter, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Angelica, it's an absolute pleasure.
0: Now, as you know, this is a podcast about the fabric of society, really the question of what keeps us together as a community and how we can overcome divisions. You've served in the UK Armed Forces for 40 years and became the head of the British Army from 2010 to 2014. And you've more recently co-founded the leadership consultancy Amicus. Do these issues around community and cohesion, overcoming divides and diversity do they play a role in your work life?
1: I think they do uh, more indirectly than directly because you know we all want to be in a society at peace with itself where uh, differences in opinion can be resolved constructively without the sort of schisms we're seeing at the moment in many many countries around the world and, and within which businesses can thrive and indeed charities and the public service all of, all of those organizations, can thrive against the sort of backdrop of confidence and common decency and um, proper behaviour and you know care for one another.
0: In a way it's quite striking how much time people spend at work and so a lot of questions around society and community I believe actually take place and take shape in the workplace. I think that's something that many people don't think about a lot. We tend to think of Community and society is happening in our neighbourhoods and our schools, maybe in parliament. But I think the workplace as a theatre where these things unfold is kind of underestimated. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, but I, I I think that may be gradually changing since more traditional times, because people are getting so much information outside their working environment through things like social media and other sort of internet driven news channels and that sort of thing. So I think that, you know, whereas perhaps people in the past had a home life and then a work life, there's a sort of virtual life that's, that's or a virtual environment that people are moving around in where, whether they're at home or at work or indeed traveling, but, you know, commuting, whatever, they're absorbing masses of information from different sources a lot of which, because of the way in which social media operates, is actually reinforcing their thinking rather than challenging it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's these kind of silos which I think are shaping how we turn up at work, who we surround ourselves with at work, in our work, and then ultimately shape how we contribute to those social media channels as well. So there's a circular element to this. Yeah,
1: definitely. I'm with you on that one.
0: Mm. For organisations, including the military to work well and for society as a whole to work well we need quite a high level of cohesion yeah in your experience what typically undermines cohesion in teams and what can propagate divisions in the workplace for example
1: well if we're talking about a teams in a business that's got clear-cut goals or it, it has a it has a it, it's set up for a purpose hmm. i think the things that build cohesion can also be uh, a slight risk because it's easier for like-minded people with a common background and uh, in, in a sort of monoculture to be very cohesive.
0: Yeah.
1: But of course, they tend to lack the challenge function. And increasingly in society, we don't have a traditional monoculture. We want to be able to integrate people from a whole range of backgrounds to give us, you know, resilience of thought. Um, and and that kind of slightly runs counter to the, the idea of an old boy network or an old girl network, for that matter, where people are looking for like-minded people who'll fit in easily. You've got a bit of a tension there between the easy thing to do and the right thing to do, uh, where I think one should be looking for For more diversity. I haven't really answered your question yet. What are the threats to cohesion? I think Mm -hmm. they are a lack of a focus on a common outcome. Mm -hmm. I think they're the obvious thing of people putting themselves and their own ambitions ahead of the team uh, outcomes and team goals. So a, a lack of commitment. A lack of accountability, wanting to blame other people when things go wrong rather than put their hands up and say, that was me. I'm sorry, we've got to do better on that. That was my fault. I think the inability to, and this is, this really does play into your point about an increasingly divided society, the ability to handle conflict, i.e., to invoke challenge to oneself from across the team, to have a sort of spirit of, sort of self-doubt, positive self-doubt that's being dealt with by a really vivid conversation that says, well, you know, this could go wrong. So what are we all going to do about it? Rather than saying, it's such a brilliant plan, it's bound to work. And then finally, it's about, you know, the mutual trust between the individuals. So the trust will be built by uh, positive experiences and all the other things I've mentioned. And it'll be very quickly eroded by people wanting to do their own thing, not consulting, not keeping people informed, running their own agendas, you know, frankly, being disloyal to the rest of the team.
0: Yeah, you make a very interesting point around the importance of productive conflict. And I'd like to explore a little bit more how cohesion and conflict actually can coexist and how conflict becomes positive when they coexist. Because I think for lots of people listening, conflict and cohesion might, might seem almost antithetical. You can't have both of them at the same time. What does productive conflict look like and, and what's the role of cohesion here?
1: So I think that um, like any system or organisation, it's going to be more resilient in the long run if it's been subjected to stress. And so the conflict is a form of internal stress mechanism. I think it needn't be internal. It could be seeking outside criticism or commentary. I've got a good friend uh, who's in politics who said to me the other day, whatever anybody does in any walk of life, they're going to get some criticism for it. And if you've got a, an internal challenge function, then you're basically getting the criticism up front and giving yourself a chance to make corrections before you launch your idea on an unsuspecting world, rather than doing it with false confidence, not having stress tested it, not having put it through a sort of conflict mechanism. And then, you know, unsurprisingly, when it's put out there, you discover things, um, you know, aren't working as well as you'd like, or it might even fail critically, because you haven't subjected it to enough rigorous scrutiny. So I think this internal... Conflict is about rigorous scrutiny to make the team uh, effort uh, more resilient.
0: Is this something that can be aided by team diversity?
1: I think I've seen it done in two ways. And I think, I think the answer is yes, it can be aided by team diversity, because that will give you different um, frames of reference, maybe cultural perspectives, mm-hmm. gender perspectives, age perspectives, different professional makeup, you know, humanities versus STEM people. They all think slightly differently. It's interesting how few STEM people you get in politics. So you've basically got um, different frames of reference, which is an expression I learned from you. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll put that out there. I'm, I'm not. It's not my original thought, that one. And that is allowing you to get several different takes on a situation, which should, in theory... Make your ideas more, more resilient. Whether the people will then hang together cohesively when the pressure's on, uh, in a in a human sense, um, that's probably harder when you've got a more diverse makeup. But if you can make that work, you've got you probably got really genuine cohesion. The other way I've seen it done, the, you know, and this is slightly uh, based around what, what I did, what we used to do in the army, and which I'm sure the army still does. By its very nature, the army doesn't have as much diversity as it might like and as other organisations can more readily have. The first thing is, to be in the British army, you've got to be a British citizen. Yeah. That doesn't mean to say you've got to be a white Caucasian, but you've got to be a British citizen. And so you tend to get less cultural uh, variety. You get less cognitive diversity. Um, you get incredibly good cohesion. And the army is very good at generating that because everybody comes through the same sort of mill in terms of recruiting and selection and then training and testing. And it's got the army has a very good human resources system that uh, identifies the better people and, you know, gives them a leg up in their career. Whereas others, of course, you know, they might not. I mean, it's a very it's a very good system. And I think it's extremely fair and meritocratic. So that all helps because that helps generate trust. But it does it does lack this cognitive diversity. And so what the army does is it it subjects um, planning and thinking to what are called red teams, yeah. which is a group of people who whose job it is to be the naysayers for any plan. And they essentially assume the frame of reference of the of the opposition or the Um, you know the enemy or maybe the civilian population or maybe the political class that you've got to persuade of the merits of your ideas and so um, that is quite an effective way albeit artificial of producing challenge that isn't necessarily going to run directly counter to team cohesion
0: yeah this is some this is something that i've found really productive that there are certain principles and certain techniques developed in the In the military context that actually translates surprisingly well to a civilian and to a commercial context and the concept of red teaming is something I first encountered in the military context and for our listeners it's ultimately a perspective taking exercise so we know that empathy doesn't just have the emotional component where you feel what the other person feels, but it also has a perspective taking a more cognitive dimension where. You really try to see the world through someone else's eyes. And of course, trust and cohesion are in many ways underpinned by empathy, by the ability to take on somebody else's perspective on a a challenge. And so with diverse teams, of course, comes the challenge of cohesion and of developing a strong team identity. And that's something we'll talk about in a moment. But there's also an enhanced range of perspectives that you can take on and so you might be more able to readily stress test any ideas there are
1: quite a lot of academic pieces by the sort of types of folks who thought about this sort of thing not in necessarily in the military space but in the commercial and uh, academic space about you know if you if you want to have a cohesive team that's genuinely effective because there must be lots of quite cohesive teams who aren't all that good Hmm. but that doesn't really get you anywhere then uh, sometimes the lack of this um, appetite for conflict and inability to resolve differences is is a real problem. And there are many team leaders who advocate actually instigating conflict to create constructive tension so that you get more resilient ideas and you get more imaginative ideas and and more innovation. And, And I think that's an absolutely valid point.
0: Can you give us an example of how a leader might instigate deliberate conflict in their team?
1: I think, well, there are plenty of people we work with in Amicus who are trying to quell internal riots and they think they've got quite enough conflict. Um, And actually, sometimes it can be quite destructive. But in in terms of... But I don't think you're playing with fire here. And I don't think you have to be devious or undercover or assume a false position. I think you've got to probably war game ideas with your people in order to test the thesis. So you might say to one of your team members, look, you're very strongly in support of this idea. You know, let's just turn that on its head and look at it through a slightly less positive lens. You know, what could possibly go wrong? And are are we absolutely sure that our understanding of the the basis behind your assumptions and so on, uh, or the, the thesis you've come to is actually valid. And I think that's very helpful because particularly in a crisis, I think people tend to react to the conditions as they would prefer to see them rather than with a really good understanding. And you know, any planning you're doing um, must start with a really clear understanding of the situation and what you're trying to achieve. And very often people miss out those early steps Mm-hmm. In their haste to acquire some certainty and shape to a problem they're trying to solve or a solution they're trying to provide to a problem. And so I think that um, that, you know, just internal challenge.
0: Mm. I think authentic dissent is a really important part of it. I, think, I believe there's some research showing that just playing devil's advocate isn't actually going to get you to a more well-rounded perspective within the team. It has to be an authentic form of dissent, credible yeah. disagreement.
1: And and I think that's why um, if you had a a significant shortage of the sort of challenge you're looking for, it might say something about your team composition. And therefore, you should be looking for people who you know come from a different frame of reference because they're going to produce that challenge function. Mm.
0: You were in your time in the military quite an active proponent of opening combat roles to female soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that uh, the, the military context lends itself quite well to this conversation, because, of course, team cohesion here is often a, a life or death matter. So teams need to work very well. Trust needs to be incredibly high for you to go into combat and believe that the person standing next to you will take a bullet for you, quite literally, if that should be necessary. How would you say that the introduction of women into combat roles has affected team cohesion and what might be some of the strategies we could apply in a commercial sector to maintaining a strong sense of unity and team identity as we increase team diversity.
1: So I think that in general, it's been a, uh, it's been a success to increase the proportion of uh, women in the military, not least because it puts men on their mettle. Mm-hmm. I mean more intellectually and in terms of behavior and culture than I mean in terms of battlefield courage. I haven't actually seen firsthand the impact of female soldiers and officers in the teeth arms of the military, that is to say, the the tank organizations and the infantry organizations. But I'm not hearing anything negative about it. It's obviously a very significant cultural change and something that had to be sold very carefully to the traditionalists who are the people who provide the cohesion of the army in a a very, very major way, the sort of sort of the sergeants and the more junior soldiers. But I think the, you know, person for person, the quality of the females that are coming into those roles speaks for itself. I mean, they've got to be quite motivated. They've got to be courageous to go into an intensely male environment as a very rare female to start with. I mean, it's always harder for, to break the ground, um, you know, at the beginning of these things, these are the these are the pioneers, the pace setters, and so that by their very nature, they're bright, driven, committed, and pretty capable of standing on their own two feet in what could be a slightly intimidating environment, and that's even before the enemy turns up. And I think that the uh, the army's experience of this has been very similar to my experience since I left the army and started to build teams in our business mm-hmm. um, and and you know the very fact that i co-founded amicus with uh, a lady from a corporate background with a different frame of reference for me tremendous courage tremendous drive that sort of ref- mirrors the sort of experiences we've been having with the the advancement of female opportunity in the military mm-hmm. and i think that um it's challenging to the men in terms of the culture, which is very important, but it also does bring a different perspective in terms of problem solving. And I think the army is much the better for it.
0: Can you talk me through some of the things that organizations can do to maintain strong team identity without necessarily ignoring or downplaying internal differences? Because I think that's probably at the heart of making use of diversity and benefiting from it as a whole.
1: Well, I think that, you know, whilst you're looking for people with different frames of reference, you're asking them, in fact, you're insisting in the military, that they conform to a common code of practice.
0: Yeah.
1: And so the army's values are extremely important to it. And it puts a a huge emphasis on respect for others and, you know, self-discipline and moral courage, those sorts of things. So you want different perspectives. But you want actually people to conform to the army's operating model, which is a sort of way of life on the one hand, sort of more in the peacetime sense. The whole existence of the army goes by a certain code of behavior. And then, of course, when you go on to to military operations, then you've actually got professional and technical procedures that have to be adhered to because without them, you know, you're going to undermine assumptions of other people in the team or the group and they're going to be let down so you you're looking for a bit of dissonance but you're also looking for it in a scenario where there's a high degree of conformity and the people who can't live with that uh, conformity are not really going to be very effective soldiers because you never know whether they're going to be in the right place with the right equipment with the right idea to do the right thing at a difficult time. And, you know, that's very awkward for trust, because the whole point about these these convergences, these commonalities, are there about sustaining trust, trust between people in the team, but also trust in the overall system. You know, we've we've had situations in the past where that trust has has not always been as we would like. Take the First World War, for example. I know it's 100 years ago, but you get this strong sense of chateau generalship. People making decisions that are affecting huge numbers of lives at risk, sitting back in safety, living um, a relatively relaxed life while other people are you know, living a horrendous existence in the trenches. You know, that sort of idea, which can very easily be a modern idea in a business when you've got a CEO who's being paid 30 times more than the most junior employees, those sorts of things. There's an element of that chateau generalship idea there, too. So this trust is really important. And so you want your what is a has been a highly male dominated environment and therefore one that relies on the physical attributes of males and so on and so forth to be one where there's enough conformity for the females to be respected and trusted, but enough latitude for the differences in physical ability and the way they think and the, the ideas they can bring to the effort. To shine through and it Mm. does require particularly in the leadership level with with young officers and so on it does require very competent leaders unfortunately there's plenty of females out there who are at least the equal of their male counterparts and in many cases better because they come about the role of leadership in a slightly more empathetic and sensible and less macho way but with all the same moral courage that is essential to being a respected leader
0: Let's talk about leadership then, because it strikes me that if you don't get the buy-in from the top and if you don't get the role modeling from the top, a lot of the diversity within teams is ultimately prone to creating division rather than cohesion. What would be your take on leadership and maybe especially leadership under a crisis that maintains cohesiveness and that strengthens a team while still making good use of the heterogeneity
1: within the team? So I think that um, the the thing about a crisis is it's going to absolutely illuminate any defects, schisms, lack of cohesion, selfishness, lack of trust throughout an organisation, team by team by team. So the first thing that people want in a crisis is for the leader to step forward and accept responsibility for what's going on and start to give them the confidence that he or she is going to do that he or she doesn't have to have an immediate response for everything doesn't have to be autocratic albeit you know sometimes there is a place for more more autocratic behavior and less discussion because frankly we have to do something we have to do it now And even if it's only a 60% solution, it's better than having a sort of discussion about it ad infinitum. So sometimes there's a role in a crisis for slightly more directive behavior,
0: especially in a chaotic environment, Yeah, in a chaotic
1: environment. And actually sometimes, sometimes particularly less experienced people just want that clarity. They just want to be told what to do because it's better than sitting there in doubt, waiting for something to happen, you know, taking the initiative and, and being um, active is a, is quite a good antidote to nervousness and um, you know agitation and all that sort of stuff and fear, and so you're looking to leaders to step forward, and then depending on the situation and depending on where you are in the organisation, to start to understand what's going on and bring in the very best brains in the team, and have that discussion to work out what we're going to do, what problem we're we trying to solve, what are our options. Pick an option, get on with it. That sounds very simple. Those three steps, but actually, an awful lot can go wrong if you don't understand what you're doing and communicate the whole time to your people. Now, all of these, all of these things are about generating trust and confidence, which are um, are antidotes to an extent to all the things that are happening that are bad, that are trying to erode cohesion or tend to erode cohesion because it's putting things under pressure. And so the less confident people will look for someone to blame. Some of the, you know, the less experienced people will get hyperactive and try and um, sort of lead their way out of trouble without having thought about it. Everybody will have a slightly different response. And so very important that the leadership team starts to communicate with people, explain what's going on and start to give a direction of travel with a solution for the problem we're trying to deal with. And we've seen actually, if you sort of, Look at this through a macro lens. Look at the the British um, coronavirus experience at the very early stages. That sort of understanding of the problem, strong communication, and clarity of intent was lacking for quite a few weeks. Mm. During which the thing got hold, and you know we arguably haven't really got control back. Other nations did that a lot better. One of the reasons that's disappointing about the UK response is because it sort of was built around a sort of sense of exceptionalism. Oh, well, we're British. This thing isn't going to get us. Well, we all know that whether you're an individual leader or whether you're a senior team or whatever, that you're one of your biggest enemies is a lack of humility. It's hubris. <laughs> Thinking this isn't going to bother us or we're going to crack this or we're good enough to beat them or we'll maintain our you know, our leading edge because that's who we are. Well, actually, the people who are maintaining their leading edge are the ones who are adapting faster than everybody else because they've got the humility to realise that complacency is their worst enemy. And that comes back to our earlier conversation about challenge and generating conflict. It is an antidote to complacency and hubris, which really do undermine businesses if you don't grip that early. So anybody who's understating the nature of a crisis is doing their teams no service whatsoever. Better to be slightly overreactive than undercook it. You can always tone it down later, but you've got everyone's attention when you pull the alarm bell and say, right, we're now in a crisis, we're going to behave differently now. You know, events happen and they happen whether you're ready or not. And so leaders need to build teams and rehearse them, So they've got a resilient approach to things and they're anticipating negative things that can happen. They're already quite good at dealing with setbacks rather than sort of trying to pull the expertise together in the heat of the moment and uh, exchanging business cards with, with people who you really ought to know really well and trust rather than meeting in the inferno.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned communication there as one of the core leadership challenges in this environment. And something that you and I've discussed before, which I'd really like to get your take on is that, of course, coronavirus has dispersed teams into home offices. So fewer and fewer colleagues will have the opportunity to actually meet in the same space. Leaders don't get face-to-face time with their teams. What questions around team cohesion has this sort of challenge raised for a leadership consultancy like
1: Amicus. My background in the military, we are very used to having teams that are dispersed. Yeah. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that the individuals within the teams are being dispersed.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's very difficult to sustain uh, levels of cohesion, motivation, energy, challenge, the whole sort of constructive tension piece of having people working together when people are spread out and they're suffering the sort of monotony of life on Zoom, where, you know, they all the energy and the stimulus they get from going to work with their professional friends is lacking. And it's the sheer monotony that erodes people's energy. And it, mm. a lot of leaders have told us, and we, we've talked to them in an amicus context, that, you know, they they themselves are feeling you know, lacking in motivation because of the uh, the tyranny of this setup, and they're finding it very difficult to convey a sense of motivation down the, down the Zoom tube to their workforce. And I think that uh, that explains why teams that may well have been quite cohesive prior to the lockdown, over a period of time, I would see that cohesion being eroded by the sort of dispersion. And when you've got the composition of a team changing or maybe because of economic pressures linked to covid you've got reorganizations going on or maybe even mergers you've got a real challenge with rebuilding team cohesion with people you've hardly met don't know haven't socialized with maybe only ever seen their face on a screen and so you know you come back to our earlier discussion about the attributes of a cohesive team um and these are sort of you know, these are procedural rather than human things. But, you know, are we all focused on a very clear statement of what we're trying to achieve? Are we all focused collectively on the same results? Now, you probably could run a pretty effective team with a little bit of doubt about some of your outcomes, if you're all meeting by the water cooler several times a day and chatting, and you've got a sort of subconscious self-correction going on across your team. That that's not going to work when people are dispersed. You've absolutely got to stipulate that and you've got to update it and remind people and can keep communicating to them about that. You've got to know because you're you're the team leader and you're talking to these people one on one or maybe in small town halls that their commitment is holding up and they're not it's not sort of flaking into more self-interest than you know, interest in the team outcome. You've got to know that they're going to be accountable. And out of sight, out of mind could lead to less accountability. But actually, you've got to reinforce it. You've certainly got to still be having the conflict conversations. And you've got to somehow add to a sense of sustained trust. So that's much more difficult to do when people are dispersed. And I think it's got to be done with much more precision and clarity. And it's going to take more of a leader's time than it would were all of his people you know, sitting in an open plan office and all your senses attuned to what the boss is thinking and um, adapting accordingly.
0: So if more Zoom meetings isn't the answer, because we're all tired of them, what can leaders do in very concrete terms?
1: I think some Zoom meetings might be the answer. It's about the content of the Zoom meeting. It's about being very clear. This is very op- easily open to misinterpretation. You know, am I discussing an idea with you when I ask you about something, hey Angelica, what do you think would happen if we did a bit more of this and a bit less Mm -hmm. of that? That's discussing an idea, that is not giving you an intent. Mm -hmm. So you need to be absolutely crystal clear about what is a discussion to examine ideas, to make a more effective plan or to change our direction of travel. And what is absolutely the culmination of those conversations and now here's the intent. And I would actually, what I would do is I wouldn't just do that on a Zoom call, I'd put it down in writing and send people an email to support it. If it was an important change, I'd actually be having one-on-one calls with individuals just to make sure they've understood what we're trying to do and they're all on site. And so these are not sort of new tools. They're they're very traditional tools, but they're being used in a slightly more rigorous way. This doesn't only have to be stern or steer stuff. It can be done with a light touch, but people are going to sort of want more contact with their boss to be reassured that they're doing the right thing and they're still in the boss's mind. So there'll be people who maybe are very, very keen for elevation in the organisation, want to get noticed. So they're going to want confidence. And then they're going to be the people who perhaps are a bit a bit sort of middle of the road. They're not your sharpest knives. They may be a bit worn down by a long career. You know, Their prospects are not excellent. They're still very, very important people, but they are going to get jaded quite quickly because... So you need to be engaging with them to make sure they're motivated and doing what you want and calling people out who are not delivering. I mean, any sort of tolerance of poor behavior is going to accentuate the lack of cohesion of a team when you're not meeting.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because on the one hand, we seem to be talking about the ABC of leadership, bread and butter kind of stuff. But on the other hand, we're talking about its application in a slightly different context. And the difference in that context to what we were used to is really quite significant. I wonder what leadership, what leadership training, what leadership consulting will look like going forward, given that the challenge of maintaining cohesive teams, and as a matter of fact, also adding new people into entirely virtual teams, which is a whole different challenge, how that is going to feature in the future. Do you think that some of the lessons we're learning currently in leadership are going to be relevant going forward in a post-pandemic world? And which ones would you pick out specifically?
1: So the effect of lockdown has been a stress test on all teams. It hasn't been a sort of business event stress test. It's been a constraint on people's ability to interact which is stress testing, the ones that were strongest before they started will be less affected than the ones that had problems before lockdown started. We've been doing quite a bit of work on, you know, trying to identify whether there are any new mechanisms or processes out there that are brand new, not necessarily silver bullets, it would be nice to have one, that will now be part of the, you know, leadership in lockdown toolkit. And it's disappointing to report that we haven't yet thought of anything other than being even more brilliant at the basics. Yeah. Um, So I think you're trying to sustain the rigor whilst you haven't got the advantage of the emotional connection and the energy and the innovation that people get from working together. You know, most good ideas come from conversations, not from people sitting down with cold towels over their head in their (laughs) own Spare room where they happen to have set up their office, um, their ad hoc office. So you've got to recreate these opportunities for people to bounce ideas around virtually in a similar way to what they might have done in um, in the office. And in fact, here, there are opportunities from Zoom or whatever forum you're using because it's much more efficient, doesn't involve any travel. You, the technology is good enough to put people in breakout rooms, get them to talk to people they've never met before and exchange ideas. You know, if you use it imaginatively, you can come up with different ways of doing the same thing and getting to a similar outcome. You know, clarity of intent through a really good understanding, a really rigorous analysis. You know, you could have your red team in a separate room from the the blue team and you could then play tunes and mixing up the individuals. Mm -hmm. All sorts of things you can do with Zoom that will give you, in quite short periods of time, a whole array of conversations that might make your planning more resilient It will make people feel involved, it'll give them energy, it'll make them feel that their ideas are being fed in, and ultimately they'll understand why we've now moved to this new plan.
0: This is a really good time to start wrapping up in a way. This is a leadership challenge, so I wonder whether you can leave our listeners with a question or so they can ask themselves as leaders in this time going forward, and maybe a call to action for everyone who's a member of a team.
1: So I think if you're a, you're a leader in this environment, you need to ask yourself how much time you're devoting to really looking after your people and making sure that you understand how the lockdown challenge is affecting them. And I think if you're a team member, the rallying idea is look after one another and be absolutely sure you understand what your boss wants of you, what your team leader wants of you, your role in his or her plan but also have the courage to inject challenge when you feel it's appropriate.
0: Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Angelica. Take care.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Angelica Loves Conversations. As always, if you enjoyed listening to Angelica Loves Conversations, I would be grateful if you chose to subscribe to the show. Finally, there are two small things that you could do to help other people find the show if you listen on apple podcasts you could leave a rating or a review ask a friend if you're unsure how to do this and whilst you're speaking to that friend or any other friend really tell them about the podcast maybe they'd enjoy angelica loves conversations too right that's all for me thank you so much for listening and i look forward to you joining me again for the next episode of angelica loves conversations bye bye